dropped all my things. Well, thank you, Laura, for reading the passage this morning. And thank you, all of those who have come in this morning uh, for the live studio recording of Twin Cities Church. <laughs> you get a kind of live action scene or see what it looks like on a Sunday morning when we, when we record all this stuff. Uh, this morning's passage is a really interesting one in so many ways. You know, Ezekiel chapter 22, which is the chapter that we're in. And so if you have a Bible, you know, feel free to just look through all of chapter 22. This is really the chapter where God lays out through Ezekiel the failings of the nation and what it is that led to their eventual collapse, not just as a society, but also religiously and morally and that led to them being judged and going off into exile. And in this passage, and in particular, we really want to focus on those beginnings. And in chapter 7, what Ezekiel connects is, it, Ezekiel connects Israel's collapse as a nation, really with the collapse of the family in Israel as well. That those two things went hand in hand. And that phrase that Ezekiel uses Father and mother are treated with contempt in you. Is a very strong admonition against Israel. It doesn't feel very strong to us. You, know, you just hear that, that you are showing contempt to fathers and mothers. Or Ezekiel's, even this phrase, what it really also can be translated is to make light of. Like you have made little of mothers and fathers. But as we unpack the Old Testament, again, this is one of those where it's sometimes difficult to read an Old Testament passage and not see ourselves and our own culture and our context in it, where we don't recognize how serious this charge actually is to make light of fathers and mothers. Um, but really, when you do look at this, I mean, this is a direct violation of the fifth commandment, that you are to honor your father and your mother, which God gives twice right, in the Old Testament, honor your father and mother. Uh, ascribing or what really what the Pentateuch argues for is that Israel is supposed to ascribe weight to fathers and mothers. People are supposed to give honor to fathers and in mothers. In Leviticus 19, God says that you are to fear fathers and mothers. You are to give them reverence to fathers and mothers. In fact, it's taken so seriously and I don't know how I missed this through my years of Old Testament study. I guess you, know, you just kind of gloss over certain sections. But it's taken so seriously in the Pentateuch that to dishonor the, your father and mother or to dishonor fathers and mothers is punishable by death. There's three places, three times in the Pentateuch where that's what it says. Uh, in Exodus 21, 17, in Leviticus 20, verse 9, and then again in Deuteronomy 27, 16, that if you dishonor Fathers and mothers, if you do not give them the glory, ascribe them the weight that they deserve, do not show them reverence, it's, punish it's punishable by death within the Jewish community. That's, that's pr very strong. And in fact, right, if you really just look at this concept or this idea, fathers and mothers and that plan of God for the family, and for that dynamic to be in place is given an incredible amount of weight in Scripture. 
God's intention and plan for human flourishing involves a man and a woman who bind themselves together in love and in marriage to bring life into the world. This was God's plan for the world right away in Genesis. Right? We all know this to be the case with Adam and Eve and that they will bring in and the hope of redemption and the hope of life coming through man and woman having ch children through a father and a mother. And to disregard God's plan for the world, right? to disregard God's intention, to disregard or to make light of it in Scripture, or even to just not revere it the way that we should, or to not give it the weight or respect, according to the Old Testament, is to disregard God himself. It's to go against God is to not show the honor, to not give the honor and respect due to fathers and mothers. And really one of those themes then that we do also see throughout the Old Testament and through life, right, are these natural consequences that come for going, from going against God's design for how we were meant to live and for how we were meant to flourish. It's very much like going against our owner's manual for how our lives are supposed to live, right? God gives a plan and a purpose. He clearly shows it through scripture of how life was meant to be lived on this earth, of how husbands and wives were to love each other, to have children, uh, to bring life into this world, the connection within the people of Israel, and then through that one family, many families, through those many families, the blessing to the world through that, right? And as we move away from God's plans and purposes in our lives, we suffer the natural consequences of our sins. And I think all of us can relate to that. When I'm not operating in accordance with God's plans and purposes, right, there's not necessarily a thunderbolt from heaven that wakes you up or tells you you need to stop, but rather, right, we just experience the natural consequences of not operating according to God's plans and purposes, right? It's much like with a car, right? You, you're supposed to change the oil every so often. <laughs> There's no, you, you don't have to. You can choose not to. And there will be a natural consequence for your decisions. You can get away with it for a long time, in fact. And you can kind of try to fix things a little bit as it goes. But if you, the longer you treat that car outside of the way that it was designed to be treated, the more you will suffer the natural consequences of your decisions. And that's really what we see within Israel's history. God so lovingly and clearly gives his plan for human flourishing, for life, what it looks like to be his people. Right? When you look at the Exodus, when you look at him taking them aside, bringing them to Mount Sinai, dwelling in their midst and giving them the law. It was. Here it is. Here is my plan for you as a people, as a nation, what it looks like to honor me, to be a people who will bless the world through how you are going to live. You will be a holy and distinct people. You are not going to look like the rest of the world. Here's my plan. And Israel continually moves away from that plan. And they disregard God's law. And for hundreds of years, they suffer the natural consequences of those decisions. The breakdown of God's plan 
is experienced within Israel. And especially in, just like we, we talked about last week, and we, we see this throughout all of those condemnations given against the people, Israel ends up looking like the rest of the world. They were to go into this place, and they were to be holy and distinct. They were to be a blessing to the world and how they were going to live and how they were going to be unlike the Canaanites, unlike any of these people around them that didn't worship God, but instead, they end up looking just like those foreign nations. And in so many ways, you see that, especially with the rulers of the nation, this plan of God with a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, who would be unified together, who would love each other and bind each other in marriage and have children, is forsaken, is given up for polygamy, is given up for concubines. Right, you look at Israel's history, if you look at Saul, I mean, it is quickly forsaken by the kings and the rulers of Israel, the idea that I would have one wife, that my children would come through one marriage, but rather they give all that up for harems, for the degrading of marriage, for the degrading of women, that men, according to the power that they had, right, will use that power and will take advantage of women and will not honor marriage, will not honor their wives. This idea of a husband and a wife, a mother and a father, becomes disparaged throughout the, the Israel's history. It's not shown the honor that it's due, that God's plans and purposes are mocked and reviled. Contempt is shown. Now, when we look at our own current situation, unfortunately, it's not that different than it was for Israel's situation then as well, where we, we do live in a time and in a culture and a place where there is outright contempt shown towards the idea of mothers and fathers, of marriage, of God's plans and purposes for raising children in this world, for bringing life into the world. The culture, our culture historically, is showing a less and less reverence and respect towards those institutions. Now, as reading this, you know, like the, I mean, for many, this sounds like even as I'm talking this way, right? Like, oh, whoa, the kind of sky is falling. Very conservatives, you know, in the kind of conservative perspective, always needs these narratives of decline and everything's getting worse and worse. And hold on, I mean, uh, uh, you know, let's take a deep breath. But but unfortunately, it, it, we are in decline. I mean, I, th I think we, we have to acknowledge some of those truths and aspects. Because on the other side of the flip coin, you know, conservatives always need narratives of decline so they can kind of energize their base. And progressives always need narratives of pr progress <laughs> to energize their base. But in a lot of ways, and just through, through data, we can see that, in a, that we are in decline in so many of our cultural institutions and in our, our way of life. There's a recent survey study that was done by the University of Virginia just last year, where 66% of respondents agreed that the nation they think is in decline, right? When you just look at our institutions, and especially in terms of not necessarily means of production or money or any of the access to things, but in terms of enjoyment of life, freedoms, that they would say 66% of the country thinks that we are in a state of decline. The Social Progress Index, which was a group that was created in 2011 to kind of chart 
social life across the world and in various countries. The U.S. is, the only, is only one of three nations across the world that they said has where the quality of life has gone down since 2011. Again, not because we're not making money or because we don't have access to things, but really just because we're experiencing more and more unrest, less, more and more polarization, less opportunities for certain groups, more opportunities for other groups, where it doesn't feel like everyone still has the same kind of quality of life. And that's, you know, there's a lot of perceptions about decline, but we really can just look and see that, I mean, families, this idea of family, this idea of husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, is certainly in decline. And that's just empirical data. You look at the census, you know, the last census, or if you go back to like to the 70s, when it looked at like households, well, how households were made up in the country, 79% of all households were a husband and a wife. Right? had a mother and a father in that household. Uh, the m- most recent data now, it's down to 47% of the country of households are made up of husband and wife, of a married couple who has, who's the, has a household. The, different, the rise of single-family households, just one person being a household, has really tripled over the years. The rise of single-parent households, uh, and this doesn't even take into account that, that married household doesn't take into account necessarily homosexual or lesbian households but just that idea of a married couple household is down to 47% of all households in our country. So, I mean, that's, that's different. Now, if that's good or if that's bad, right, that depends, again, on your political leanings and your narratives. If you need a narrative of decline or if, you, if that's a narrative of progress, that's kind of, you know, up for debate in some of those ways. But even people's outlook towards marriage, this was out of the Pew studies and research, would say that... of Raising children, views have really changed as well of whether or not what's best for raising of children. Only 40% of people said in the most recent one that a married couple is a better situation for raising children than any other situation. Right, that's, the, that's, not, that's under 50%. Right? 40% of people said right, that a married couple is a better situation for raising children than a single parent household um, or any other types of household. That's, that's, that's a big difference in terms of how we look at marriage, how our country and our culture looks at the idea of fathers and mothers. And obviously, we could go into all the other different views of our country. This isn't even getting into gender and sexuality, um, but it's all tied together, obviously. But this view... So if we really are going to take seriously God's plans for human flourishing that's in Scripture, our culture does not give that plan of God much credence, much weight, that in fact is the ideal. Not that everyone is going to experience it, and not that every married household, right, is this amazing place. <laughs> and it's not to say that God doesn't work or love or care for people who are raised in different households where there are divorced or where it is single family. Of course not, right? But, if, but just, the, just the fact or the idea that Scripture gives God's plan for raising children and bringing culture and life into the world, and it involves husbands and wives, fathers and mothers raising their children, our culture does not agree that that is, in fact, the ideal 
or that is in fact good. And we experience the natural consequences of that breakdown and we're experiencing the natural consequences of that breakdown in our society and our culture as well. Again, you know, we have such a strong view in culture that marriage and a husband and a wife, a father and a mother is not necessary for raising children and in fact is not better for raising children. But that viewpoint, while culturally acceptable and we feel the pressure to agree, has no science or data to support that because all of the data shows the opposite, right? That, I mean, children who are raised in homes without fathers and mothers, all of the, the statistics show to worse quality of life and worse living conditions. Graduation rates are lower. Earning potential is lower. Crime statistics are higher. That really we do, it, it shouldn't be surprising Right, that in so many ways that we do have this generational difference where you do have the quality of life going down it's for so much of our country when, in fact, the family unit has also been degraded and going down. The reality that we face right, is that we live in a culture that makes little, that makes very little of God's plan for husbands and Father, of husbands and wives, of mothers and fathers. It's a culture that does not hold that in high esteem. If not, just outright contempt. There are many and many political groups and movements that do hold this idea of fathers and mothers raising children in contempt and say that that's old-fashioned and needs to go away. That's part of the problem of society and that we need to get away from marriage. We need to get away from these types of things. This is our culture. How are we then supposed to live in a culture that doesn't honor marriage, that doesn't honor God's intention for human flourishing? I think on the one hand, and again, some of us, I mean, I mark myself in this camp, I don't like to feel overly conservative and <laughs> kind of old school sounding, right? But we have to take a pause. It's okay to pause and feel a little bit of weight and conviction over some of these things and lament that decline in our country, in our culture. That this is not good. This is not progress. This is wrong. And it does have natural consequences and effects in our society, in our neighborhoods, in our lives that's not in alignment with God's intention. And we should be struck by the seriousness with which God's word handles it. You know, to, to hear God give that to Israel so many times, how this is so important, that this is a, one of the Ten Commandments, that you are to honor this institution of marriage and of God's plan for raising children. I mean, that should cause us to pause. And the fact that it was such an issue and such a thing that God cared about that it led to the collapse of Israel and God's judgment on them for making little of it should also cause us to pause and reflect. How am I then supposed to live? Well, I think the danger that we face is a very similar danger to the danger that Israel faced. That we can become like the cultures around us and no lo longer look distinct. This was Israel's issue. 
they had received God's law, they had received that owner's manual for flourishing, for living, for being a blessing in the land that they were going. And instead of following that law, they adopted the cultural patterns and norms of the countries and the nations that they, moved, they lived amongst. The same is true for us. Where we no longer look distinct. We no longer are distinct from our culture. Many of us need to be honest with our beliefs and the influence that our culture has had on us. And for not necessarily, and again, it's not, and that's what's helpful about this, this word, right? Because again, for Israel, they could hear this and be like, well, look, I wasn't like Solomon. I didn't have a thousand concubines. I'm not, I didn't show contempt to the family. But it's not just this outright contempt or actions, but it's this making little of, not revering, not honoring that as well, which is much more insidious and something that is a culture can become guilty of. Even though in our own marriages we may look like or follow God's plan and intention, we can still, though, show contempt in our lack of caring for the institution or in how we view our culture's lack of caring for the institution. Many of us need to be careful. Many of us need to actually look at how influenced we are by our culture and by the cultural narratives, and if it bothers us or if it doesn't. Does it cause us to lament? Do, are we grieved by the cultural breakdowns of the family? And for many of us, we don't grieve for it, or we don't, we hold it true for us. We think it's good, but we would never say anything or hold a view that it's bad for others. <laughs> and really, it's out of, there are probably two ways. I mean, it could be, it's, for a lot of it, it's just out of fear. We're, we really live constantly in fear of persecution. I don't want to look like a weirdo. I don't want to come across as some ultra-conservative. I don't want to be somebody who feels like they have hate or is against different types of families or different neighbors or those types of things. Now, there's another danger that we can face as well. We can become overly influenced by our culture and our society, absolutely. And many of us, right, if we're honest, especially depending, and is this, right, this is just our culture today, it seems like it's so dependent on where you live, what neighborhood you live in, is the greatest indicator of what you're going to believe or how you're going to interact with all of these things. Like, why is that, right? Because we do take on so much of the culture around us and of our immediate circumstances and, and places where we live. And so for some of us, we do have to see we are made, we are supposed to live in the city. We are supposed to live in this world. We are here, it's, we're, but we are not to become part of it. We are to be holy and distinct. We are to show love and kindness and mercy and demonstrate a different way of living. Now, that other reaction, though, is an overreaction in the other extreme. And we see this really clearly an overre overreaction, which is also disregarding the family, but an overemphasis on the nuclear family. This is a very popular response to this as well, where you say, whoa, yeah, tell me about it. 
This culture is just going in decline. Nobody respects marriage anymore or child rearing or all of these things are God's law. But me and my family, me and my house, right? They, you take Joshua 24 and you put it over your door, right? My house and my, for my family, we will follow God's law. And you make this emphasis upon you and our family. My marriage is gonna be the good marriage. My family is going to be one of those good families. We're going to do this. But it's really falling into this trap of an idolatry of individualism and of isolationism, right? Where you say, oh, well, that's not going to be me. I'm going to do this. And in such an emphasis being placed on our individual lives, our individual families, we show a disregard and contempt for the family of God, which was never God's intention, that we would be living as individual nuclear families, like our own individual Israels or something like that. No, we were called into a family. Our family life matters. The ordering of our home matters. The way in which we treat marriage and raising children matter, but we are also part of God's family. We are connected beyond ourselves to others as well. And for me, just to respond and focus and put all of my time and energy and efforts into my family shows disregard or makes little of God's family. So we can overreact and end up making light of God's plans for family to be united into this family of families. There'll be a blessing to the world. We can disregard the family of God and not be strengthened or refined in godliness through being connected together. Where we end up not overly influenced by culture, that was that one extreme, when we kind of the frog in the kettle who doesn't understand or see that they're, the water's rising and we, become, we just end up looking like the culture. That's what happened to much of Israel but we can also overreact and become too isolated to the point where we can't be influenced, rightly influenced. We can't be called out. We can't be corrected because we've become so isolated, so secure, so confident in our godliness and our plans and our purposes, right, that we are just as arrogant and show just as much contempt for God's plan. So Ezekiel's call then, to Israel in exile is much the same as the call to us in our exile here. Because this world, this world is not our home. This is not the place that God has intended us to dwell. It's the place where we are dwelling now, but our true home is coming. So how are we to live and interact in this world and in a world and in a culture that disregards God's law, but also where we have disregarded God's law as well? And Ezekiel in all of scripture calls us to remember who we once were and to know where we live. Just like George read in the opening in that welcome, we were all, we all were blind and walked in darkness. <laughs> That's just the truth. Outside of Jesus Christ, we were all ignorant to God's law. We all did what we thought was best for ourselves, we listened 
to whatever we wanted to. We pursued whatever we wanted to make ourselves righteous. Whatever cultural wind was blowing, we follow. That's all of us. That's who we all were. But we have been purchased and adopted into God's family through Jesus Christ. Through Christ's death and resurrection. And this is what Christianity is. Christianity believes that we have been given new identities. That we do not have to find our hope and our identity in this world. Because we all once did. We all once tried to find our identity, our family, a place for ourselves, a home in this world, in this life. That's why we are so desperate to always kind of find a group of people, friends, a home, have family, have children, do all these things around our house. I mean, we're always trying to build ourselves a kingdom, build ourselves a family, make for ourselves a place of safety and security. But the good news of the gospel is that we can stop, that we have a home, we've been redeemed, we've been adopted and purchased at infinite price and cost, and brought into God's family. We've been given a new identity. We have been connected to others. We've been given the Spirit. But we are not home yet. And we have to remember that second part. We're still in exile. Ezekiel is telling the people, right, like to remember God's promises, remember the law, remember the promise of Scripture, that you are a unique and redeemed people, God's people, that, and that's true of us, but we can't, we're not across the finish line yet either. Our true home is coming, but rather this time now we will live as strangers in this world, as aliens, as sojourners, as a people who will never feel quite at home, and that's intentional. Right? This, we are not to be like our culture. Our culture will never agree with us. Our world will never look like what it should until Christ returns and makes all things new. So what does the reality of this do? If I can remember who I was and what Christ has done for me and that he has adopted me and brought me into his family, and if I can remember and keep in mind, right, that this ultimate true home is still coming for me, well, on the one hand, it helps me not to lose hope in the face of of a culture that disregards God, right? I, I shouldn't be surprised. This is very Peter, right? First and second Peter. What do you, why are you surprised, Christians, at persecution? Why are, you being why are you surprised that the culture in the world is working against you? Well, why wouldn't they? Why do you expect culture to revere the things of God? That wouldn't happen. Why would we expect our culture to act in any other way? So it, all, it enables me to not lose hope, but it also enables me to have confidence and the energy that I need to invest in my family and in the church. Right? When we reflect on the truth of the gospel and how God has called me and empowered me and strengthened me and put me in his family, it gives me the energy that I need to put the focus where I need to put it. That it helps to kind of reorientate and focus our lives, that there is no greater missional strategy in our world today. 
I mean, if you want to look distinct, if you want to be a blessing to this world, if you want to live as Christians, I mean, there's nothing more missional you can do than to live according to God's law, to live as a loving wife, to live as a loving mother, to live as a loving husband, to live as a loving father. To raise your kids in the way of the Lord is maybe the most crazy, evangelistic, missional thing you can do and where you should be spending your time and your energy. Right? If I'm neglecting that, but putting my time and energy into all these other missional activities, I think, what am I doing? Right? Especially in this exile. Right? But to train the next generation, to raise up children, to raise up of families right, that revere and honor God, that there is nothing greater to do. These temptations to overreact in either direction is going to be incredibly strong. To become too much like our culture, that temptation is incredibly strong. Right? We all know this. Depending on your culture, if you live out in the country, the temptation is to overemphasize the nuclear family. <laughs> if you live in the city, it's to overly become you know, influenced by this cultural narratives of any family is a, is a right family. Anyone has the same, op- everyone needs to be able to raise family. There's nothing, no better version of things. The temptation is strong, and it really comes out of a desire to protect ourselves, to protect ourselves and protect our kids from persecution, right? It's, it's just, I want to look like the rest of the culture. I don't want to receive persecution. I don't want my kids to go through persecution. I don't want them to have to go to school and have to get called names. Or I don't want them to go through these things, so I'm going to either isolate them from the world or I'm just going to let them be overly influenced by the world. Either way, I just don't want them to have to go through things like this. But when we see Jesus suffer for us, when we see Jesus go through the persecution that was meant for us, when we see him reconcile all things, reconcile all the contempt the world can throw, when he can reconcile all things according to himself, when we see him die for those who despised him, which includes us, when we see the proof of our eventual vindication through his resurrection, we can have peace and find strength to hold on to God's law, even in the midst of a culture and a world that that doesn't, or that works against it. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your incredible plans. We thank you for the way that you have made us, the way that you have designed us, the way that you have made this world, the way that you have created a way for culture to spread, for love and care to be given, for mercy and grace to extend. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we thank you, Lord, really for just the common grace that you lavish on us every day and that you give to this world. But Lord, we also, just like Ezekiel, Lord, we want to confess how we have sinned and transgressed against your law. Lord, for countless generations, we are guilty of despising you and of working against your plans and your purposes and feeling the effects of that. 
Lord, like a good father, you let us suffer and you call us back to you. So, Lord, we confess that. Lord, we confess that as a church, we are too easily swayed by our culture or too easily uh, overreactive and isolated. Lord, strengthen us through the gospel to really take your word seriously, to care for our families, and to care for the church. Lord, strengthen us to not lose hope in this world, to not lose hope at the suffering and in the face of sin and its consequences. Lord, give us the strength and the energy that we need to strive for godliness, to meet pressing needs, uh, Lord, to invest in our families, and Lord, ultimately into your family. Lord, strengthen us through your spirit as a church to live lives that are holy and distinct and that bring you glory and honor and that bring people to you and that grow your church. Lord, in your son's name we pray. Amen.